0: So I think of feedback as a gift, right? That I'm actually having somebody, when I'm giving feedback, I'm effectively gifting them feedback. I think of it as a beautiful blue Tiffany's box with a lovely ribbon on top. And inside that box, there's a whole lot of packaging and a gift inside. When you give someone the feedback, they're going to not necessarily just take the gift and put it on the shelf and say, thanks. They'll unpack the gift. They'll pull the ribbon, they'll lift the lid. They'll see the wrapping inside and they still won't necessarily understand what's in the box until they start to work their way through it. So when we're giving feedback, if we can help people by working through the wrapping so that they can see the gem inside, they're more likely to receive it in a way that's positively minded, even if it's in conflict to the type of gift they'd otherwise wanna receive.
1: How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute, corporate and world sport coach. This is the inspiring great leaders podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is an executive coach and partner at Deloitte Australia specialist in positive psychology and the author of Be Your Own Leadership Coach. Our guest has a master's in uh, Master's of Science in Coaching Psychology and Master's of Laws from the University of Sydney and a Bachelor of Economics from Macquarie University. She has over 32 years of experience in the professional services industry including an impressive 23-year tenure as a partner at Deloitte Australia and R&D tax advisor at Michael Johnson Associates. Her passion also extends beyond the corporate world, generously volunteering her coaching skills to clients such as Dress for Success, International Coaching Federation, Expert Author Community and Bambuda Group. I have the pleasure to bring you a phenomenal human being whose purpose and passion aligns with coaching woman leaders towards sustainable long-term careers and business, loves normalizing the once taboo topic of menopause in the workplace, and is known for baking mouthwatering honey cakes in Sydney. Karen Steyn. Karen, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Craig. Great to be here.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. So, you live in Sydney. Uh, I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were racing around the playground?
0: Uh, well, I I did grow up in Sydney. Um, I've spent most of my life in Sydney, actually. Some couple of years we lived in Canada uh, for a while. My dad was uh, an academic and he had a number of sabbaticals. So, we were fortunate to go to school um, in the coldest parts of Canada for a few years. But other than that, it was Sydney and, and my dreams um, were really about, uh, well, I guess I've lived them out to some degree, but about helping people. I really wanted to be a family lawyer, um, probably not so much in in the young days when I was running around the playground. But when I was, you know, a little bit older and kind of cool, sitting on the side thinking about life, and you know, rather than playing with marbles at that at the earlier years, I started thinking about family law. How could I support people to work through uh, challenges around family structures so that they could feel supported and they could move forward into having a positive life?
1: And yeah, now you seem very much like someone who has an absolute passion for learning. And, and obviously your dad is an academic. You've got a couple of, you know, masters, a couple of degrees as well. You know, what was it about, you know, studying that you were fascinated by?
0: I've I've always had a love of learning. I I just like the growth aspect that comes with it. And so, um, it's just something, uh, you know, and and I've had different, I I guess, responses to different learnings I've had. So, my most favourite of learning came with my masters. Uh, of science in coaching psychology. I really felt I'd found my place. I felt I'd found my people and, and was able to get into the detail of the evidence base that comes from the field of positive psychology and really start to unpack you know, how people think, how they feel, how they behave, how we could actually you know, really be looking at the human side of um, supporting people so that they could be of their best um, quite away from economics, <laughs> which was my my undergrad degree, and my master's of law, to be frank, I did a law degree and I had thought about practicing law. I fell into the world of tax and that master's in law, I kind of looked at as a bit of an insurance policy. You know, what if things didn't work out? Where would I take it? So I did that. And I remember going to the darkened rooms. Um, I was studying at part time on rainy nights, um, feeling pretty fatigued and tired and not really feeling as energized as I, as I did when I certainly had the learning experience with positive psychology. So I think it's that growth curve that you go on when you actually find that you're opening your mind to something and you're curious about it and building out your perspective and your insights and your knowledge and taking you beyond where you are to greater appreciate and understand the world around you. That's what I enjoy most about learning. Mm.
1: And your dad being an academic, I and mean, what was your dad's best advice when it come from uh, from learning and you know approaching the uh, world?
0: Well, that was kind of funny. Mum was a a teacher, um, so it was very much an academic household. Um, In fact, my, my father was an economist and he was at Macquarie University where I did my economics degree and I was present in his lectures while he was lecturing everybody and i knew him as my dad uh, not as professor stane standing at the front of the room and throwing people out when they were you know mucking up in class um so i guess i kind of looked at it as dad teaching and doing his thing and um you know he did sometimes bring jokes to to the examples he'd give so when he was giving examples from of an economic concept he might use a nickname of myself or my brother or or something to, to have the characters in this example, which, of course, would make me giggle and my friends who knew me and everyone else would be writing this down in their notes as to <laughs> the names of these things. He was always very supportive. We had a bit of a laugh when I finished my economics degree when I told him now that I too was an economist and and uh, he knew how I'd studied or how I hadn't studied and how I'd got myself through my degree um, it certainly wasn't with the due interest in care that he had. But I thought it was a good place to start. I wasn't quite sure um, how I'd move into to law. Um, I had been quite a playful student um, in my high school days and I hadn't really applied myself as best as I had. So when I finished my high school certificate, I didn't have the marks that I wanted to have to walk straight into law. So I, I started, I did my economics degree and I started to thrive and started to to really learn how to study, which I hadn't learned so well for, for the earlier years. And that's when I then transferred in to do my law degree um, and, and then started to, to realise what a pleasure it was.
1: Mm, beautiful. I love that. Did you ever challenge the professor? <laughs> uh, outside of recent? the
0: classroom, like I knew where he could take things. <laughs> I didn't want to be the butt of his jokes. Um, no, so I used to, I used to have a bit of fun and games with him and and tease him. You know, when we we go home, and uh, it was just, it was such a privilege. You don't often get to be mm-hmm. in in front of your parents when they're in their profession, when they're doing mm-hmm. their thing, and when they're being the professional selves they are, and what they're bringing to their profession. So seeing him masterfully teach, and he always had, um, you know, significantly positive reviews in his teaching. I was always very proud of him and he was very accessible, very approachable, and even to this day when I've met people who put the dots together and realised that that was my father, um, I'm very proud to say that he was held in, in high regard. So yeah. it wasn't just this family bias coming through, um, but it was nice. It was a real honour to be able to see him live out um, what he was doing and me to witness it and be a part of it.
1: Yeah, you're 100 right. It, it is very, very rare that you get to to be a part of. You know, I suppose n- not being a colleague of your your mum or dad, actually being yeah. the client, so to speak. That that's yeah. very, very rare. Um, yeah. So it's a beautiful experience for you. It's kind of like I suppose for me when I was a, being an athlete and dad was coaching our field hockey teams. And yep. in some respect, I mean, for him, it wasn't his main profession. Although he's very, very good at what he did, you know, for him, it was more the volunteer on the side and. Uh, and did it from a passion perspective, but you know, you, you've got to—you're always balancing that respect for this is my, you know, my parent, but yeah. also, you know, I'm I'm here to be the 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 student or the client, mm. so to speak, at the same time.
0: Yeah, um, he had to have his um, colleagues mark my papers, of course, so <laughs> there was no conflict of interest. Um, <laughs> which probably worried him wondering how i was (laughs) going (laughs) to go you're going to get through
1: Uh, which is good so you 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 spent a bit of time you know working in taxes etc as well what was the shift to sort of move into deloitte and, and what was kind of the were you still doing tax when you first started at deloitte
0: yeah so so um As I mentioned earlier, I had an interest in family law. So in finishing my law degree, um, I had been moved by some of the work I'd done during my degree with Kingsford Legal Centre and started to actually work on individual cases and understand the impact you could have with people. I went to the College of Law in Sydney to gain my practising certificate to become a solicitor. And um, in those days there was no computers with seek.com to find jobs. There was lots of billboards, lots of adverts stuck all over these billboards, and I plucked an advert from it rung them up, got myself an interview and rocked up, assuming that they were a practicing law firm. Uh, I discovered they weren't. They were a small boutique consulting firm, and they specialised in the research and development tax incentive. And they we did an interview. They offered me a job, which was kind of surprising. I figured I'd stay for six months and get a real job. But I stayed for seven years and I absolutely loved it. And it was very purposeful work, um, helping businesses seek funding uh, to further their research and development to the benefit of the Australian economy. But after seven years, I I thought it'd be nice to be elsewhere. And we all knew each other in the field of R&D tax in Australia. And I liked the guys at Deloitte. I thought they'd be great to work with. So I simply asked them for a job. Uh, They didn't have a job at the time, but they did have a a corporate tax partner who took me under his wing and I worked with him for a short while. And then I was transferred back into the R&D taxes team and the journey um, went forward to become a partner of the firm a short time later. So I I had a career as as a partner for some 16 years in tax. And and really enjoyed the opportunities that came with it, the the clients that I worked with, multinational clients, as well as local um, organisations and great teams. And I learned a lot from them as well as tried to build and and impress upon them different elements as a leader myself in leading those teams. Um, But as I tell people, I was getting closer to my halfway point. Um, I was getting closer to 50 and I'm determined to live to 100 And I realized that R&D tax was not going to shine for me for chapter two of my life. And I wanted to do something more impactful, which takes you back to that family law piece. I wanted to help people. And I'd realized I was helping corporations, but I really still wanted to come back to the individual. So it was close to that time. I'd uh, been on a leadership program myself. and I'd been given a coach and I fell in love with the process of coaching. I, I really started to distinguish between what a coach was, what a mentor was, Um, I was fascinated by the process of coaching. So I went and did a certificate in coaching practice Um, that felt a little bit lightweight. I wanted to go deeper. So that's where I found the master's program and started to do that. And then an opportunity came up to move into an executive role within the business. And I started to coach some people then. And I finally shaped a program, which I offered to the firm um, where I'd leave tax altogether. Um, As I say, hang up my tax boots and and deregister as a tax agent, so never to return. And I moved into our talent team to start coaching our women partners across Australia. So I did that in 2016. Uh, and it's been a privilege to, to have this career pivot, to have this role within Deloitte, um, and to be in service to the, the many women partners that I support in their careers.
1: Yeah, we've interviewed the likes of Alan Derrick on the podcast oh, before, fabulous. who I'm sure you've yeah. spent quite a bit of time with. And it's it's wonderful to see the kind of empowerment we've seen with women partners and leaders inside Deloitte, I think it's fantastic. The, the global kind of movement in the way that has been done. And I know, you know, with the likes of, you know, Alan and other people who are kind of really sponsoring those initiatives and supporting them, uh, it really helps to see an organization thrive.
0: It does, it does. And bring attention to it and support those, um, in the workplace so that they can be of their best um, it's, it's a terrific contribution that they're making towards the fullness of the workforce.
1: Yeah. Very good. Uh, so for those who are listening, I mean, cause we, we hear the words mentoring, we hear the words coaching in your words, how would you describe what each is and what is the difference between the two?
0: They are quite distinct and they're often used interchangeably, but. A coach is somebody who sits with you and explores and reflects um, and discovers with you options towards the goals that you might have or helps you identify obstacles or barriers towards those goals. So they almost act as a reflective frame to help you grow your self-awareness so you can be more understanding of your behaviours, your emotions and cognitions and be more informed to make choices towards the impact or the goal that you'd like to have. So it's very much a a process, a a collaborative process of exploration. Mm. Lots of questions are asked. It's really a questioning frame. A mentor, on the other hand, is coming at you with advice. So you'll seek a mentor because of their lived experience or their professional experience, and you might pose a problem you have or you might question how I reach a goal, and you'll ask them to tell you what to do. And so they're going to tell you as very different to question you, but tell you what to do based on how they would tackle it, how they would have handled it in the past. So it can be really interesting and informative to hear what would work for them and maybe think about how I could apply that for me. What I'm challenged with sometimes with mentoring though is is we're all such different people. Sometimes somebody else's Approach might not match my needs. It could be that we have different ways of seeing the world, different communication styles, different levels of confidence, different networks, or different ways of dealing with problems and emotional um, constraints around those. And that then I think helps us when we think, no, I wouldn't do what they're suggesting. That's a real nice coaching moment because you can take that and say, well, what is it about that? that I might explore to see why I wouldn't lean into that? Is it that I'm lacking in confidence because of A, B and C? Or is it that... Um, the way I communicate isn't clear in my messaging and I need to work on that. Or maybe I over-communicate. You know, what, what is it? So you can use both. And I do suggest that people build what I refer to as your own personal board of directors, where you have a coach, you have a mentor, you also have an advocate. And an advocate goes further. They actually help identify opportunities for you and pull you through towards those opportunities Um, They might champion your name when you're not in the room, connect you to their network and and absolutely support you. And likewise, you'll support them with reaching their goals. So it's a two way street in relation to that. And the last person I'd have in that personal board of directors is what I refer to as a reciprocal mentor, somebody who perhaps um, is junior to you, who can see the world differently to you and who is able to bring to your attention different ways of doing things or seeing things, which can, um, I, I guess, open up and explore more for yourself in, in how you might solve a problem.
1: So we're talking about, we've got an advocate, we've got a reciprocal mentor, we've got a mentor, we've got a coach. Um, where does teaching fit into this? Where does a teacher? Um, is, is that when you go more from one-to-one to a group, like facilitating, or does it have a place as well within inside an individual?
0: Oh, it absolutely has a place, but I wouldn't necessarily have them as as in your personal board of directors because I think you're seeking those people more regularly for support and advice, whereas a teacher I think you'd go to to learn a skill or learn something in particular um, which would be additive to, to that framework. And also some of those people are going to be teaching you along their journey too. So absolutely you'll be learning from your mentors. You might even find your coaches are teaching you particular skills and coaching you on particular skills. Um, so it's kind of at times there's an uh, overplay of both.
1: Is there a place for an agitator? You know, you know, someone that will play devil's advocate who will challenge you yes. from different perspectives. Like for me, uh, I've always found that the people that have pushed me the most have been those who agitate me, make me feel a little bit angry. Uh, um, you know, I, I don't get so good when people get too cozy and, and, and yeah. dress things up to make it feel good.
0: Well, I don't think that a coach or a mentor necessarily has to make it feel good. So I think they can agitate you too. So, you know, a coach can do so with the type of question that they ask you. They can um, be agitating you in terms why it's of importance to you or why it's not of importance or what are the patterns that they're noticing in your behaviors, emotions and cognitions. It might feel a bit challenging and uncomfortable when you hear it they can bring to your attention things that you're not saying. So what's not being said that they're noticing that they can agitate and bring that forward. And likewise, with the mentor, they can absolutely tell it as it is, you know, I see you doing this, and that's not right, or I don't, I'm not in agreement with that approach. How do you feel about that? So you can have that, again, threaded through those relationships, as opposed to going just to an individual simply to perform that role.
1: Hmm. We, when we look at say human beings who have have gone into the corporate world they've you know trained as an economist less less is the economist right they've been trained yeah. as an economist they've been through university they've gone into a job as an economist and they're a great specialists they're a great technician of of mm-hmm. economics yeah. and then one day they get tapped on the shoulder and they said okay next week on monday you are leading a team of 10 congratulations we look forward to seeing you on Monday and they dive on in on Monday and and we've seen this many many times and it still occurs many many times every single day uh, where this person either falls into the trap of um, I need to be amazing like I need to know everything because everyone's gonna be looking at me and I don't want to be found out as a fraud as though I don't know what I'm doing Um, or you get those who simply will just struggle they, they will get lost and then you find those who go, you know what, this is a great opportunity to bring everyone else alive because they have skills I don't, so let's, let's support them. And then you might get those people that kind of flounder along the way. What is the role of organizations at this juncture of someone's career?
0: I think there's a big role to be played. Um, Because when we're actually giving people an opportunity, I think we need to be supporting them with that opportunity. So we want people to succeed and grow. We don't want to be giving people opportunities where we're we're throwing them into the fire and leaving them to see what happens. It's really about equipping them, whether it's um, with skills, whether it's conversation, um, whether it's it's support of having a team around you, resources that might be on hand, whether it's technology or, or other initiatives to help and support you. So it's understanding what's the expectation of the role I think is important and often that's spoken to or if if you're moving from one level to another in an organisation, typically there's an understanding of what does that look like, what's expected of me in this new role, what are the strengths I need to bring, the skills I need to bring. I think within organisations if you can have a coaching culture as we do, it's also very helpful because people can support you through that. You have a coach that you can be working with who can help you identify what are your strengths and how you can bring them to this new opportunity. So what are the things which energise you and motivate you and inspire you and what have you used in the past which has helped you have success that might be relevant to be using now and how could they actually take you on this journey towards the the problem that you now have to solve? Um, I think when people do it in isolation, that's when it's challenging Mm. because we don't have as broad a perspective as we could possibly have. So from a systems point of view, we're only seeing that one small dot in the system, which is me. And I really need to be able to lift myself up to see more of the system and all of the interconnecting parts and start considering, you know, what's emerging through the changing dynamics? Where am I moving to? How, How fast am I going? How slowly have I lagged behind? What's happening with the people around me? to be more informed to the decisions that I'm going to be making in that new role. And so if we can open people's minds to more system thinking, to be able to understand what's happening around them, what are the influences, who are the influences? It's a what and who. Um, what are the conversations to be had? What's the quality of the conversations that we're having as well? And how is that helping the system or how is it not? Um, I think people can then have a greater opportunity to grow and to fashion and shape that role to bring the best of themselves. And it's really important that that they are focusing on themselves. How can you be the best of you as opposed to how can I mimic somebody else and try and be Mm -hmm. just like Craig? If I try and be just like you, it's going to feel inauthentic and uncomfortable and I don't speak like you, I don't think like you, I don't see the world like you, and as much as I might want to emulate your success, it's never going to be my success. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes do see that when people move into roles, they think, aha, so-and-so is great, I'll just do what they do. And they find it really clunky and uncomfortable and they they get a bit disengaged when they're not having the success that they see of someone else. And so if people can come back to themselves to understand their own values, what which values do you want to honour in this role? What are your strengths? What's your purpose? What actually is it that you're trying to achieve? So what are the goals and what's going to motivate you towards achieving those goals? Then you're much more likely to enjoy it and be engaged Purposeful and and be more motivated to find out different ways of, of um, achieving what you've been asked to do.
1: It's interesting, you know. We're talking about your your personal board of directors there as well. You know, think about who they are. To me, though, it depends. Like you talked about, you know, we talked about teaching earlier. To me, it depends on what stage you are in your career. Like yeah. the earlier on, the more you actually need a teacher, uh, and especially in these instances. You know, unless we've got someone who can teach us or we've got a company that is providing programs to teach us or we've got someone, um, you know, it could even be ourselves going, hey, you know what? I need to study, you know, a master's in management or something like that before I even get to those situations. Um, But we've got to teach someone first because they don't have any experiences around leadership going into yep. coaching mode sometimes doesn't always serve them because they may not have the experiences on it. It's it's like, it's like uh, you know we deal with an amazing company in Australia and we're helping yep. them with a graduate program and they want stuff around negotiating. Well, they're only one or two years in. So yes, they've had some examples of negotiating, but not high level negotiating in mm-hmm. a, in a um, corporate setting. And, you know, to even things like whether they get really, really, you know, quite be quite complex or quite intense negotiations. So what we did there is to actually bring in some more experienced people in the organization to come into that program, because if we left yeah. those young ones alone, they, they just wouldn't, the, the teaching alone would not give them um, enough perspective to gain as much out of that program as, as they possibly could, even though we know the skills. To learn at a graduate level would be amazing. Amazing to have that. They just don't have yeah. the experience yet. Um, so Mike, yeah, so so my, I suppose my question is here, the role of training and teaching from a leadership perspective in organizations needs to start well before those people actually go into leadership roles.
0: Is, oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. I'm when I'm thinking of a coach, I'm thinking of the one on one as opposed to coaching a collective, which you know would be group coaching or team coaching. Um, and in the coaching, the coach can actually be questioning with the individual, where are you up to in terms of the skills? What are the skills that you need to build? Where, Who's going to be in support of you? Who in the organisation do you need to tap into or team with? Or which learning program can you register for? Or whatever it might be. So I was thinking of it more from a one-on-one coaching sure. kind of individual basis. But yes, I agree. We do need to teach skills um, to help people lead throughout their career and and importantly, when I think of leadership, I'm in, in in my writing, I actually talk about the differences between different types of leadership. When we badge ourselves as leaders and only want to be a leader if we have a certain title, that's more about positional leadership. Whereas I believe everybody has great capacity to be a leader. As soon as you walk in as a graduate, you can start to demonstrate your own leadership how you show up every day, how you contribute, how you're planful, Mm. how you lead and role model in the way that you conduct yourself. That's all role modeling to your peers, to other people. So once we start to recognize we're beginning in each step we take to build our leadership skills in terms of thinking about other people, connecting, building our listening skills, communication skills, we can then have the requisite programs to advance us even further to to build on that. So the negotiation skills, for instance, how do we build on that further? Mm. And the larger organisations, I'd suggest, tend to have either in-house or external programs that they bring in, um, or they might have coursework that people can access, whether it's virtual or otherwise, to try and and scrub up in areas where they feel they need support. But I still think a coach is really helpful to help you realise that you need support, because if I'm just attending a program to tick a box to say I was in attendance, so you can mark it off to say that I was there, but mentally I don't have an understanding that perhaps my listening skills do need some work. Perhaps I'm I'm not necessarily present when I'm sitting with my team or my manager or my, my client and I'm not really listening because I'm distracted or I've been selective in what I'm listening to. If I don't work out my needs and for that I'm going to participate in a very different way, it will be very cursory as opposed to necessarily connecting with and giving meaning to why I'm having the training in the first place.
1: When I look at, you know, coaching or, you know, whether it be mentoring or, you know, let's say learning as a space, that growth mindset, the, the ability to learn and grow. One of the biggest things that, or all challenges that I noticed moving into corporate space from a high-performance sport background was, you know, feedback loops. You mm-hmm. know, being in, in sport, you know, for, for many, many years, or probably pretty much three decades, I was, or over three decades as involved in sport where, there's an extremely tight feedback loop, like it is, it is, it is happening not only from the coach, but the other players. It is extremely tight when you move into the corporate world, in some cases, non-existent, Mm. in some cases, the feedback loop is 12 months, which is too late as we know, right? What are you actually helping someone with after 12 months worth of collecting something based on one or two moments that you may have seen or observed or someone's told you about. So, is it actually a full picture to now we're seeing, you know, some better feedback loops, but you know, when we look at executive coaching, it's not accessible for everyone because of the, the cost. Um, it's not accessible inside every organization because they they look, you know, the, maybe the size of it, maybe they the way they prioritize where expenses go, you know, based on mm-hmm. how do we get a return on investment for, for our people here. And, And that importance of having the accountability, um, having someone who can ask you the right questions uh, is so important. So how do we create firstly more, more opportunities for people to be coached internally inside an organization? And then secondly, is there another way?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I might, I might jump to the, is there another way? And then come to the first part of the question, how do we create more opportunities? Because I think the way I see it is, and you refer to accountability, is that you're quite right. Not everybody can access a coach. Logistically, it's not always possible. You might have a coach, but you've got defined coaching sessions. They've come to an end. They're not sitting with you whilst you face into the challenge. And maybe you just didn't have a coach allocated to you in the first place. And also, yes, financially, you might not have the discretionary spend to be able to pay a coach. So my view is that we can increase the equity of access to coaching strategies by building up self-coaching, building up people's self-coaching muscles so that they can be in support of themselves to be their best self. And then when I do attend to a coach or have a coach with me, I'll have a much more nuanced conversation because I'll know myself even more so. I'll know myself much better. I'll be aware of my behaviours, my emotions and cognitions. I'll be aware of what's helping me and what's hindering me and the patterns that come with that. So the first thing I think we should be doing is teaching more people the art of self-coaching. How do I build my self-coaching muscle? And typically people these days are so busy, they're not making space to prioritize themselves and look after themselves and use that self-coaching muscle. Mm. And the same way I say, you know, you could think about it in sport. If I was to you know, want to improve my speed in in doing a lap around the oval, if I did it once, I'm unlikely to actually have success. I need to be continuously training. It's the same with self-coaching. I can't just do one thing once and expect that I've built a new habit or I'm seeing the world differently, or I've grown my perspective. I need to actually start to make space for that for myself. So that's what I ask people to do is actually pause and make space, find some time to have some self-reflection so you can stand outside of yourself and look at yourself as a third party would and notice what you see of yourself in terms of your behaviors, emotions, and cognitions. And then step into the second part of self-coaching, which is now to self-assess. What do I notice? What are the assumptions I'm holding, which could be self-limiting in terms of my thinking? Or maybe they're pushing me forward at such space, at pace. I'm, you know, jumping in before I should. Or what are my relationships like? How am I building out relationships? What are the behaviors I'm bringing forward that are in support of my impact? What are the ones that might be distracting and so on? And from there, I can move to the third stage, which is then going into experimentation or action. What can I design to try and build that muscle to allow myself to try some things, to try things differently, to notice different things? And that's where those feedback loops come in, Mm -hmm. because part of it in the self-coaching is building out my own self-awareness, which is a a feedback loop. I'm becoming more um, intentionally minded, more noticeable of who I am, what I stand for, what are the values that I'm honoring or not, what are the strengths I'm using or not. Um, What is the purpose I'm moving towards or lack of? And so with all of this additional self-awareness, I'm actually building up a feedback loop for myself. But the unfortunate thing is we're going to have some blind spots, just as we have when we drive a car. And I need to tilt my head and try and alter my perspective to see what is it I'm about to bump into? What's the damage that's going to be caused because of these blind spots? And that's where I can actually reach out to other people to seek feedback. To actually find some trusted people in my organisation, whether it's my coach or whether it's team members or people I'm reporting into, to help me see those blind spots, to complete that feedback loop. So it's actually a continuum of feedback from myself and from others, so I can start to grow even further. And people aren't great at always giving feedback. As you said, it could take too long. So I can actually help them by framing things for them, by going to them more readily and saying, hey, you saw me present today. Can you give me some feedback about how that landed? What do you think worked well? And how could it have been even better? And if you're giving people a frame, they're more likely to be able to provide you with that constructive feedback. But if you just say, hey, do you have any feedback for me? And they'll go, no, you were great. Just keep doing what you're doing. You've learned nothing. So, you, you know, what is it that I did that I should keep doing? I've, I'm kind of in the dark. So I want you to mine the feedback. I want you to dig through that darkness, keep digging and asking more and more questions until you get to that gem that's shining further down. And then you can use that gem to be more informed and more understanding of, of what should I do that I should do more of and what should I do that I could do differently. So that's that's kind of, I guess, the the first part of the question, how we do it differently in terms of giving people coaches It's tricky. It's tricky because coaches, you know, if we've got a coaching culture, we can try and accommodate that by teaching more of the organisation what it means to coach and helping them understand the difference between mentoring and coaching. So they're not simply telling their teammates what to do, but they're sitting there and exploring with them and helping that person grow in that exploration. Um, But the, the cost of actually having an internal coach or an external coach available for every team member Uh, would be exorbitant, and it just wouldn't be practical. Mm -hmm. So it's more likely to occur if people are advancing or maybe transitioning into a new role, or maybe they're on a particular leadership program, or maybe they're at a stage of their career where it's been identified that they could have some more support Mm -hmm. to help them have the different impact, to the current impact they're having.
1: Yeah, When I look at really successful people in this world, uh, (laughs) I have a good example that's going to debunk this in a way. Is you never see them do it on their own. No one ever achieves anything successful on their own. They have other people yes. around him. Uh, yes. there is one interesting instance, um, where the tight feedback loop was self in sport. And that was the, um, the, the guy who's just won, uh, run the fastest marathon in the world. He's only done three marathons and he went two hours and 36 seconds or something like that. Was that
0: with those fabulous new shoes?
1: Oh, they all have fabulous new shoes, but he did it with zero. <laughs> he's never had a coach. Ah, okay. Never had a coach. And so without diving in deeper to find out what support network was around him from parents or other people who may have been a role model, who may have given some level of guidance and might not have been purely around running, but it may have had an impact on his mindset. Um, or now, you know, is it sponsors or other people that are kind of coming to the fore that aren't considered as a specific coach, but may be helping this person. So it's extremely rare. Uh, so, There's science
0: behind that too. There's lots of trials and studies in the field of positive psychology which show that people who have a coach and a coach and a mentor will advance at a faster rate than those who don't. They'll also be paid at a higher rate than those who don't, particularly those who also have an advocate. Mm. So there's been some very interesting studies around that.
1: Yeah. Because my experience watching people who self coach, and I've seen this many times both in the corporate and, uh, both in you know sport, corporate, etc., is unless they have a very good framework around them. So that's one thing. They need a really good framework. But secondly, they actually need the right mentor approach. And some people just don't have it naturally until someone draws it out of them, maybe, or maybe they just don't they don't quite have it there internally to to look after themselves. So, I uh, you know it's like self-paced learning. I, I kind of. <laughs> I watch a lot of these companies that go, all right, we're gonna have this online learning platform where you can choose your own adventure and you can learn whatever you like, right? Great. Yeah. That's going to apply to about 5% of people. I'm just yeah. throwing out a number yeah. here, but it's gonna be pretty low who are actually going to use it uh-huh. and and actually apply it properly and reflect on it and to actually mm. grow and evolve. Probably you know, 90, 95% are gonna look at it and go, this looks like a Chinese takeaway menu. I'm overwhelmed by the selections of this I don't know where to start and within one or two weeks they've kind of switched off and they're just ticking the box to say to the boss hey you know what I've I've actually learnt this but really they haven't Um. so I know you've got 12 practices and, and I'm really keen to find out the structure you have with your self coaching so people not only to start this but actually keep the momentum going on this because we all know consistency and momentum is the key to success. And if you if if you're not motivated by something and you're not sticking to something, then just because you started doesn't mean it's a good thing for you.
0: Yes, agreed. And and nobody can be forced to self-coach. It has to be something that you choose to do. But I'm hoping that the structure that I give in the book actually is in support of those who are wanting or interested in advancing their self-coaching muscles, building them further. So the intention of the book is to provide you with 12 strategies, 12 practices that you can use for self-coaching. The first seven are focused on you. How can you be your best or better self? And so how can you tap into understanding more of yourself than you actually thought you could have? And we actually will find that there's a lot we don't know about ourselves until we stop and realise more. A lot of realisation when you do self-coaching. A lot of awareness grows. So initially, it's looking at leading yourself in terms of identifying the values that you'd like to honour as you um, go through your career. So there's um, exercises throughout the book. So each chapter actually comes to you with stories which help you understand the context of each of the different topics. It's based uh, evidence based, so it's it's not heavily theoretical in the way it's written, but it's it is. Um, got an evidence base behind it. And then each chapter has self-coaching strategies within it. So you have self-reflective exercises, coaching strategies that you can adopt and try and build those muscles in relation to each topic. Whether it's how do I set my goals and what kind of goals I should set? How do I motivate myself? Which is precisely what you asked. So how do I move from something I feel I have to do to something maybe I should do? maybe I'd actually like to do it. Oh, gosh, now I suddenly love doing it because I've been able to move my way through the different stages of motivation to see what I needed to bring and how I needed to bring my mindset or alter my mindset in regard to it. We move through to um, understanding how I use my time and manage my energy. So what are, what am I doing for myself in terms of, of um, my commitments to a number of things, what's in my control, what's not? We use self-determination theory to try and help people build up their ability to have their own self-belief and self-worth, which comes through the self-coaching. And that's kind of sewn through the whole book. And and then once we actually feel that we have built ourselves up to be of our better or best self, we can then bring that to how we lead others as our better or best self. Mm -hmm. So the last five strategies are really the impact that you have on others. What's the leadership impact you'd like to have? So how do you actually become more attentive to how you're seen? How are you visible? What are the perceptions that people form as a result what are the behaviours that you exhibit, and how do you build trust with people so you can have that impact? And then, how do you uh, use your listening skills? How do you consciously communicate? And my favourite chapter being how do you bring kindness into leadership, because I think um, we can absolutely dial that up significantly to allow people to have a much, a much more enjoyable experience when they're in the workplace.
1: Okay, good. Before before we dive a bit more into that kind of coaching, I think one of the thing things that I've noticed recently too is for someone who's kind of feeling like they they're now moving closer to a leadership role, about to step into a leadership, role, maybe even are in a leadership role. And I'm talking titles yeah. a little bit more yeah. here now. Um, because we all know everyone is a leader because you're yep. either leading them up the garden path or you're leading them down the <laughs> wrong one, whatever it is. Um, yeah. But we, we all have influence over people. So, but we, I, I feel there's a lot of confusion out there. You know, we must be an authentic leader. No, we must be a strategic leader. No, you must be a a conscious leader. No, you have to be a kindness leader. No, you need to be a authoritative leader. And and so there's, there's so many, it's like the like messaging. Sometimes it's just coming at you at a hundred miles an hour. And you're like, which road do I take? And I'm sure you're similar to me. We need all those components and you do, you will use all those types of leadership and command and control. You still need that at certain points. So how, when people are looking at self leadership, how do they identify which areas of leadership they've got to develop? because they might naturally already be really, really good at being kind um, and leading with kindness. They might already be someone who is very, very good at compassion and, and being conscious, but they may lack the areas of strategic leadership and yeah. being able to, um, you know, deal with challenging situations.
0: Yeah. So how you identify that is through feedback loops. So part of it is is building up your own self-awareness to see more of yourself and to see the impact that you'd like to have against the impact you're having. So what do you notice of yourself? If I'm pulling away from conflict because I'm sugarcoating everything because I want everyone to feel that I care about them and that I'm in there for their best interests and I'm really avoiding those hard conversations, I'll know it. I'll be able to feel it. I'll know that it's awkward to lean into conflict and I'll have to start considering through my self-awareness, how is this helping and supporting the individual? How is it helping and supporting me? Perhaps in me not giving them feedback, it's it's adding to my workload because I'm doing more, fixing up more mistakes that they've done or taking on more so that they can, um, you know, turn their attention to other things without criticising them or asking them to, to look at things differently. Maybe my, my team's also looking at me poorly, thinking you're just not dealing with a problem. So they're losing respect in me because they're waiting for me to lean into the conflict and they're watching it play out and they're never seeing any action from me. So I need to build up my own self-awareness to understand which parts of me are coming up, which parts of me do I need to bring to have the impact that I'd like to have, and then I need to complete that feedback loop I was talking about before because maybe I can't see it. Maybe I think I'm being fabulous in the way I'm giving feedback, but others are noticing that, no, it's not very effective. So how do I have those trusted people around me who can observe me And who I can lean into to say, hey, I I don't really feel like I'm having the impact I'd like to have. I'm not advancing the team at the rate I hoped, or we're not achieving the results as a collective that I hope we would, or we're not broadening our perspective because it seems to be a lot of groupthink. We don't seem to be able to move away from the status quo. Everyone's pulling that way. I don't seem to be able to influence the team to come this way. What do you see in me? Which parts of me are showing up? What do you suggest that I also turn my attention to? So unless we're actually building out our self-awareness, we're unable to say, should I have, you know, more authority in the way I lead? Should I be leading more from the heart? What should I be doing? We actually need to stand, you know, get out of the detail of what we're doing day-to-day with people and move up above to the balcony and look down to see, well, what's the bigger picture I can now see and and what can I take away from that? And if I can't see it, what are other people who are on the balcony seeing of me below that maybe they can lift my attention to so I can make those choices.
1: Okay. So how do we avoid bias? Right. So there's, a, a couple of different research papers out there, um, who say we have anywhere between 3,600 and 60,000 thoughts per day. Right. So no one actually knows yet. I don't think because <laughs> there's a massive difference, but we know there's a lot of thoughts and, yes. you know, there's research su- suggesting that 95% of our thoughts are repetitive. There's also research out there showing that 90% of people have a negative thought bias. Uh-huh. Yes. Right? So they, they have more negative thoughts than they have positive, which is really scary and to me quite sad. Mm-hmm. Like to, to mm-hmm. hear that. Mm-hmm. And and obviously that's based on experiences. And then obviously, as momentum kicks in, if they're not aware of it, then they're gonna end up with more negative. However, Human beings uh, from what I understand and I I can't quote you the exact research is somewhere around 90% of people 90 95% of people will speak in positive bias. So internally they're thinking negative, but they'll speak more positively and So if someone if the bias is more negative in their thought process, how can they? um, objectively um, objectively be able to analyze themselves and have awareness of themselves to make the right decisions, or, or to actually really understand themselves, and I know you've got your board of directors, but let, let's just stay internally here. How do yeah, we? Yeah. How do we identify the biases in there to prevent ourselves from focusing either on the negative too much, mm. or being or having blind spots that we that we can't see, or, or do we just need that personal board of directors to to unleash those because we're not going to see them anyway?
0: No, I think I think we have our, our own need to actually try and, and look inward to see what we see of ourselves before we rely completely on that board of directors to bring everything to our attention. I think that gets a bit lazy. If we're, if we're waiting for everyone to, you know, come into this role and coach me and then you tell me what you see of me and, and you then pull me through, well, where's my thinking? And so I need to have personal accountability for what I can do to try and build and grow and learn from myself as well. And, and so there's an important part of us absolutely trying to build open our perspective, push open our cognitive boundaries so that we can see much more and have many more um, elements, data points of knowledge coming in to us so that we can consider the inferences we're making from the data that we've observed and how are we actually just limiting it to small samples? What can we do to be more expansive of our thinking? So if I'm wanting to be cognizant of my bias, I need to hold a curious mindset. I need to be more open to understanding context and purpose and understanding difference and being curious and interested and listening, building my listening skills. So I'm not selectively listening just to confirm my own thoughts, but actually sitting with no judgment to try and understand more, which is very challenging. It is challenging, no doubt, because we're working at pace. We all want to get things done really, really quickly. So it's so easy if you've already formulated half your answer to go, aha, uh-huh, it's exactly what I needed to hear. And you hear people say that all the time. That's just what I wanted to hear. And then they go off and great, you've confirmed what my thinking was. Well, maybe they're they they they're not. You just haven't given them time to show you more. So we need a little bit of patience. Um, we need to slow down and open ourselves up to understand, well, what else could be possible? And how much am I carrying that's just an inbuilt unconscious bias which is making me see the world it is and how often do I actually stop and try and maybe push open those boundaries a little bit more by inviting people into a conversation, by listening to something that maybe feels makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable to try and understand it more so before I dismiss it and say it can't be true or I don't agree. Um, wh- wh- why do I not just wait a little bit longer to see, well, maybe I might still not agree but let me learn why they think that way and that can actually help me discover more about my thinking and whether I, I truly have a bias or not. But many, I mean, we all have biases. We'd be lying if we said we don't. It's just how much of them do we recognise and how do we attend to them? And if, we, if they're helpful, a bias can be helpful. But if it's unhelpful, what am I doing about that? you know, how am I actually kind of trying to make sense of it? And, and what's my meaning making around it that's helped me create that, that's led me to form that point of view? And, and how can I try and unpack that to learn more about myself? There's a huge amount that comes in from self awareness when you're doing that and, and self coaching in holding yourself in that moment, being present with yourself to unpack more. And that's why I say, when we are self coaching, you'll learn more about yourself than you ever thought you could that's the beauty of it and how interesting to know more about yourself what you're capable of what you're what you're thinking where your thinking comes from how you shape ideas and thoughts or how you're limited in your understanding and knowledge on particular issues topics people which actually constrains you in having more of a, a broader rounded view or understanding of things
1: so you're talking a lot around you know we're being aware of something we are uh, you know making a positive approach, being proactive towards something. But we still see a lot of people that may understand something, may see something, may have best intentions, but then there's an internal belief that is holding them back. It's it's based on previous experiences. It's based on meaning they've made up of something. It's based on what they can visualize and can see or have seen. How do we, is there anything in this, in this book here, be your own leadership around how, and, and the process you go through around how do we then be able to shift your mindset to, to avoid things like imposter syndrome or to not, not, not so much avoid, but tackle it, I suppose in a way,
0: yeah. or, yeah.
1: or when we've identified beliefs, how, how do we, how do we overcome those because, or how do we manage those? I should say, because I don't know if you can always, um, remove a limiting belief. I, I think you can manage it, I'm not sure if you can 100% remove it. So, so are there strategies in there to help people through this space?
0: Yes, yes there are. So, so in part of um, when I'm talking about how do you manage your energy, I look at our, our four different capacities, our physical, emotional, our cognitive and spiritual. And so spiritual could be purpose for you. But when we're looking to emotional and cognitive, it could be that you're actually um, feeling a particular way because of what you're thinking, the stories that you're telling yourself. And so I do go through some exercises of how you can start to notice the triggers that are causing you to feel a particular way. So if I'm feeling anxious or worried, rather than just being with that emotion and letting that play out for me and, and push the choices through as a result of that emotion, I can be more mindful and conscious of it notice it and understand what is the thinking that's leading to that emotion. Because typically then the emotion leads to a behavior. So if I'm actually aware of the thinking and I might be thinking I'm not good enough, I'm going to be found out. People, you know, will think I'm I'm useless at what I'm doing. That makes me feel worried and nervous and scared. Therefore I start to pull back from the opportunities that are presented to me because I don't want people to find out I'm not good enough. Therefore, I'm not getting as many opportunities. So I start to reinforce that thinking, really, I'm not good enough. See, nobody wants to work with you. So I get more and more worried. I pull back even further. So if I can actually start to understand what's the trigger that's causing me to feel that way, how is it helping me, that emotion, or how is it hindering me? What are the automatic negative thoughts that I'm crafting for myself, the stories I'm telling myself? How might I actually move those towards positive positive enhancing thoughts? So moving from what we call ants to pets, and how can I kind of break free and make some space in my brain to get rid of those ant mounds, which are kind of clogging the pathway thinking, which would otherwise allow me to have some different ways of thinking about myself and the situation I'm in. And it's very much the choices we want to make to have the impact we'd like to have. If those emotions coming from the thinking are helping me. So sometimes we need a little bit of stress, a little bit of arousal to push me towards something, to allow me to react, but it can get dangerous when it goes over you know, a certain limit. If I'm recognizing, no, I'm, I'm heightened now, my anxiety is not just helping me and supporting me just to keep going and have that, that sense of urgency to get things done, but it's actually beginning to worry me and create fear and, and distress. I need to question whether that's in aid of me, whether that's helping me or not. And that's why I want people to think about self-coaching, noticing more mindfulness, intentional thinking, and more consciousness of what I'm experiencing. So there's some strategies, there's some exercises within that chapter that people can reference and play out and some templates that they can actually utilize and create to help and support themselves.
1: How do we cope when we observe something of ourselves, but then we bring in someone else, we we allow someone else, either directly or indirectly, to share feedback to us that may be a direct conflict to what we are observing ourselves. How do we how do we deal with that?
0: Yeah, that can be uncomfortable, can't it? <laughs> so I think the first thing is is to think about where the feedback is coming from. And then therefore it it'll change the way that you might receive it. So typically when people give feedback most of the time, not always, but most of the time, they're giving it to you with, with a positive intention. I'm giving you this feedback so you can be more aware, so you can perhaps think about your impact, how you might change, how you might lean into something or otherwise, um, what you're doing and, and what's cause, the causal result of what you're doing so you can take ownership and accountability. So I think of feedback as a gift. Right, that I'm actually having somebody when I'm giving feedback, I'm effectively gifting them feedback. I think of it as a beautiful blue Tiffany's box with a lovely ribbon on top. And inside that box, there's a whole lot of packaging and a gift inside. Mm. When you give someone the feedback, they're going to not necessarily just take the gift and put it on the shelf and say thanks, they'll unpack the gift, they'll pull the ribbon, they'll lift the lid, they'll see the wrapping inside, and they still won't necessarily understand what's in the box until they start to work their way through it. So when we're giving feedback, if we can help people by working through the wrapping so that they can see the gem inside, they're more likely to receive it in a way that's positively minded, even if it's in conflict to the type of gift that otherwise want to receive. Yeah. So I think intention is important, but then also being mindful of, well, what do I have in my control? Am I going to be defensive from the outset? As soon as somebody starts giving me feedback, just, you know, put up my hand, you know, talk to the hand or just kind of um, zone out and not really listen to it because sometimes if we get feedback and we don't agree with it, we see it's not that's not how I see myself. It couldn't possibly be. I can go and just if I can just sit there and take the feedback, hold the feedback, hold the gift box, and go to somebody else with it and talk to them about it and say, look, this is the feedback I've received. I'm surprised by it. Do you see this in me, or can you help help me unpack this further? Because they weren't able mm. to give me enough examples, so. Look, it's challenging. Sometimes feedback can be very um, overwhelming if we're not expecting it and it's not framed in a way to be of support. So I think as a feedback giver, we've got a lot on us where we can do it better. I don't think um, many people are great at giving feedback. But if we think about how do I want it to be received, how can I frame it so the person is primed and ready to receive feedback rather than just walking in and saying, you know what, Craig? I, I think you're pretty lousy at what you you're doing here. It's not going to be very helpful if you do it like this. Well, you're in a bit of shock, right? Yeah. If somebody comes at you like that. So I could frame it and say, well, Craig, I wanted to talk to you about the way you've been communicating lately. Could we is now a good time for us to have a chat? And then you can actually start framing yourself to receive the feedback. Oh, okay, I can clear my mind. Or no, it's not okay. Could we talk about it, you know, in half an hour? I'm I'm in the middle of an urgent deadline. But then you have my full attention. So framing is really important. And then I could talk to you by talking to you about the impact of the behaviours I've noticed so it's much more clear as to what's going on with the feedback, what's resulting from the way I've been acting, thinking, behaving. Um, And then you can help me by giving me an example of where I could move to. So rather than just saying this is no good, you know, this is the poor impact you're having, how about also give me an example of what could be. Maybe if next time when you have a conversation with someone, if you just prepared a a couple of dot points for yourself so that you could be thinking about how you could take them on that journey, Mm. that would have an impact that they'd be more united and with you in the conversation. How about you try that next time? So I now, in receiving the feedback, I'm not lost as to what do I do with it. I actually have an action plan to take me forward.
1: Yeah, good. When it comes to choosing your your board of directors. And and I'm gonna use a really good example here right now. So for instance, uh, the New Zealand All Blacks, um, the most winningest sports team of all time internationally. And in Foster's the current coach, he had been under the tutelage of Sir Steve Hansen who won, they won two World Cups together and they had um, Graham Henry before that. Amazing people around him, some of the best in the game when it comes to mentors he could have had possibly around him, went to Mm. other sports, really successful people. When he got put into the role of head coach of New Zealand rugby team, he did something we see quite often. So he had a great support net, very self-aware, lots of things going on. But when he went into that leadership role, he put people around him that were just below him okay in in their ability in their um, what they could bring to the table Mm -hmm. and struggled struggled for the first part to the point where the whole nation was against him the new zealand rugby board um from my observation and seeing what happened probably didn't deal with it the best and created a space where he was able to shift from that to bring in people that were better and more experienced than that as, you know and and put people in positions that had way more knowledge way more experience way better expertise yeah but it took for him to to pretty much lose his job lose his reputation everything in that situation and it had good people around around him had good self-awareness been through lots of great practices etc to end up in that situation where now they've just won their quarterfinal against Ireland over the weekend who Ireland was number one in the world and really look on track to winning the world cup now and they've already decided who the next coach is he and pretty much said you're not going to be the next coach and already bought someone and so they already know who the next coach is so my question being around when we select our board of directors what things are we looking for i know you were talking about we need a mentor we need a coach we need you know reciprocal mentor etc but what things are we actually looking for
0: yeah yeah very fair question because people can fill those places pretty easily can't they and and before you know it you've just got names on a page um but what you need to to have are people that you can trust so you need to be able to build rapport and trust with the individuals so that you know that they're with you and can support you I think it's also about looking at where you're at in your career, what type of support do you need? So who are the skills, oh, sorry, what are the skills Um, that might be useful for you to grow from a mentor what type of experience might they have that could be interesting and supportive to you as a mentor as opposed to just someone who's been fabulous Mm. because there's lots of fabulous people out there but maybe their level of fabulousness isn't going to support me of where i need to get to so it's it's i guess aligning this the strengths their strengths their skills as and as to where you're at and how they can be in support of you um sometimes it's also talking to other people to understand What has it been like to work with them? So to hear of people's experience with them, because you might have them down on your board to soon learn that, yeah, lovely people, all good intention, but they really just don't have time. They tell you that they can help you, but you'll see them maybe once Mm. a quarter and, and they're really not having the impact you'd hope. So it's actually also unpacking with the people their level of commitment and availability to the roles that you're asking them to play in and making sure there's a shared understanding as to what those roles are. So if your coach thinks, thinks that they're also your mentor, but you're expecting them to be a coach, not a mentor, that's an important conversation to have. And likewise, the mentor and coach. So I think, you know, it comes it comes back to what are you looking for in each of those roles? Reputationally, what do you think of that individual? And have you done your due diligence to see if it's the right person, the right fit, the right background in support of you as to where you're at mm. in your career? And, and also, I guess, having some conversation with them to see whether they are open to seeing where you're in your career and where, what they can do in support of you. Because you can drag them into the room, but if they don't want to be there, it's not going to be particularly helpful. Mm. It needs to be, um, you know, a, a, a proper relationship between interested parties.
1: Yeah. I, I think we also need to be careful sometimes of we can see something in someone and we go, that's amazing. I I, I want to yeah. understand that, I want to replicate that. And you ask them, and they're like, I don't know. Like they're they're unable to unpack their natural genius in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I still remember starting Speakers Institute corporate and the team were like, you you're like amazing at relationship selling. And I'm like, I'd never freaking, I would never heard of it before, so to speak, just about like, it was literally totally foreign to me. And they're like, how are you doing what you're doing? Is there like a structure? Is it natural genius? And I'm like, I don't know. I, doesn't everyone do this? Like this is just yeah. who I am. This is how I approach things. Yeah. And to try and unpack that by myself, no idea. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. And, and I'm very self-reflective, very self-aware of things. But when it comes to sometimes when it comes to your natural, what you're naturally good at, and, and I term it as your natural genius, it is hard to unpack that. And
0: it, could, it could be humility as well that is also sitting there holding literally. you back from actually being able to talk to it in a way where you feel comfortable mm. to say, well, I'm actually am bloody good at selling and this is how I do it. But you might feel that level of self-consciousness where you just think, but isn't everybody or, you know, I don't see what you see. So, that's interesting you point that out. It, it could be that that's something that um, sometimes pulls people back.
1: Oh, uh, you know, I'd never had any sales training. Or anything like that, but uh-huh. but the 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 point here is, we have to be aware that just because we see someone do something doesn't mean they can help you unpack that.
0: Yes, yes, and
1: yes. and to uh, and to kind of question not not question that, but to kind of check that out and make sure is this someone that can actually if you're looking for an area of expertise, for instance, to guide you to yes. actually understand whether they actually are ready for or have mm. done the work to be able to unpack what you need, or is it just all you're going to be able to do is just observe them in action because they're so damn good at what they do. They don't understand what they're doing.
0: Exactly. I agree. I agree. I think it's a very fair observation.
1: Yeah, Look, this has been, it's been fascinating conversation, but we do, we do have, you know, a couple of questions here, which we love to ask our listeners and we all know smart people have great answers. By the most successful no people.
0: Sorry. <laughs> no pressure.
1: <laughs> yeah. But the most successful people ask great questions. Uh-huh. So when was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: Well, I'd have to say it was quite recently in relation to writing my book. I've never written a book before. Um, in doing my first ever book, I learned a completely new process of the art of writing. And, um, and it took me, and, and here was a love of learning, of, of being able to explore something that I thought would be quite obvious. How hard would it be to write a book? Well, I found out that there was a lot to learn. So doing that would be um, something I've done for the first time.
1: Brilliant. Were, your own, were you self-coaching or did you have someone to support you?
0: I had the wonderful Kelly Irving of the oh, expert beautiful. author community in support in a group coaching capacity. And, um, and that was really worthwhile.
1: A wonderful human being. What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: I would love to solve the question around the gender parity gap. I'd love to be able to Mm. further unpack and solve why is it that we have um, such a continuum of a lack of diversity of leadership, particularly gender leadership um, for women who are moving into leadership roles. And I'd love to see the association of that with the fact that at at the age that we're looking at, which is usually people in their mid forties onwards, how it overlays with their life stages of moving into perimenopause and menopause. Is that one of the reasons that's pulling them away from opportunities for leadership? Are we doing enough in support of these people who are transitioning through menopause to help them thrive in the workplace? And how can we close that gap so we can have um, a a broader diversity of leadership so we can be more innovative and creative and have diverse thinking and and have better organisations?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like phase 2.0 that really challenges us in that area you know you go parenthood first for those who go into parenthood um, to then into that you know that phase of menopause etc. It, it's a fascinating area that mm. we really haven't solved yet and no. it, it would be so good. it sounds so simple, sounds so easy and um, but sometimes the easier things that sound easy that like hey we should be able to solve this are sometimes the most complex and wicked problems to to deal with. For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you?
0: Well, for me, an inspiring and great leader is somebody who um, motivates and inspires and has a long lasting leadership impact, which is positive and enduring. So when they leave the room, the leadership impact continues. Mm-hmm. and. When I was thinking about who I see is um, a leader who represents that, I'd have to say Zach Mercurio. Uh, Zach is um, a fabulous author. He wrote The Invisible Leader. He's an organizational and development, um, or he's he, he's um, specialized in organizational and leadership development um, out of Colorado University State University, where he's an adjunct professor, and he's focused on the concept of meaning and mattering. How do we make people feel like they matter? So that they actually feel more than they simply belong. And I think that's a beautiful new concept that we're just slowly unpacking. um, And he's bringing a lot of of fabulous, inspiring leadership towards that.
1: Great. Love it. We haven't had that person before. So I love it. Uh, It's been a fun, look, a wonderful, wonderful conversation. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you?
0: Well, I am very active on LinkedIn. So with pleasure, please connect with me. Um, I'd love to have a conversation and, and learn what you're doing and, and be um, be able to be of support. Also, my book um, has its own website, karenstaincoaching.com, where you'll find out more about me, the podcasts I do, the uh, the articles I write, those types of things. So please be in contact at either of those.
1: Beautiful. And we'll pop those links in the show notes uh, along with how you spell Stain, the Karen's last name, in there as well. So you get that right. So you can make sure you connect uh, connect to her in the right way. It's been wonderful talking about your journey from being an economics student in your father's class to, and, and, the, and, the, and the great bond and connection you have with your dad, and I'm sure you have it with your mum as well, but I could really <laughs> feel that connection with your dad because we did specific, specifically speak about him, to then your journey into really understanding um, what connected with you, you know, that shift away from family law being a, an idea yeah. to begin with, to uh, going into tax and then finding your space where you really thought, you know, I can have a greater impact here if I move into the world of coaching. And to see what you've done but now go out there and help other people who may not have access to an executive coach. Who may not have had access to feedback loops previously or don't quite get that, that coaching and mentoring they need inside their organization or, or even in their environment. To How can you actually lead yourself? And what are those principles and practices that you can put in place from leading as you right through to leading with kindness And how can you help develop that along the way while also building a really strong personal board of directors? And hopefully it's a board of directors that helps you swim and not sink like we see in some (laughs) companies. As you as a leader, we we need more inspiring great leaders around the world. And Karen, you're doing a great job in helping instill practices and people who can take what they know what they understand but really start to analyze and observe that and be aware of stuff and to take action so they can have a greater impact on the world in the future so thank you very much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure
0: the pleasure's been mine craig thanks so much for having me
1: it's time for you to join the inspiring great leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag #inspiringgreatleaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions, and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.